Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Stefan Bonsell. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Moderna Therapeutics. The company and the man are somewhat controversial. Google Bonsell's name and the People Also Search For window shows famous entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos Infamy. Each situation for those entrepreneurs is different, and the comparisons don't hold much water. But a few common themes do stand out. These are people with big technology ideas, they've attracted big investment, have lofty rhetoric, and a penchant for keeping a lot of crucial technology details secret. They are all lightning rods for critics. Now the idea at Moderna is to turn messenger RNA molecules into drugs themselves. Inject the mRNA code, allow it to get inside cells to produce full functioning proteins, and voila, as Boncel likes to say, it's like software code that enables humans to become their own protein drug factories. Dazzling, right? Tantalizing as the concept is, it has long been dismissed as sci-fi mRNA, for starters, can't get into cells and make fully functioning proteins without triggering autoimmune reactions to raise one common objection. Yet Moderna has been able to convince enough investors and partners to throw $2 billion behind its efforts over the last eight years to create this new modality of treatment. Most of the money arrived before Moderna had any data in humans. For years, it divulged little about its technology or its preclinical data at scientific conferences. That naturally bred suspicion and, truth be told, some envy. In this episode, I talk a lot with Bonsell about his life, career arc, and influences that shape the way he thinks about Moderna. In the latter part of the show, we talk about some of the particular ups and downs and lessons learned at the company. This episode was recorded at the recent J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. And I'll say, Bonsell has a French accent, and I occasionally misunderstand a word he says here or there, but I don't think you'll have any trouble listening and understanding what he says. Before we dive in, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Presage Biosciences. Subscribers to the Timberman Report newsletter know that I write a lot about cancer R&D. All of the CEOs I talk to are under pressure to get clinical data as soon as humanly possible. Investors demand it, and patients deserve it. Phase 1 clinical trials have traditionally been the very first time that data from patients becomes available. And we all know data from patients is what really matters. Presage is working to improve this approach. I've covered the company since its early days. They have been working on creating a way for researchers to obtain human data on investigational therapies a year or two before they could with a traditional phase one trial. The business is simple. They're working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And here's the thing. It lets researchers assess several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Lastly, thanks to you for listening. If you work in biotech and like this show, tell your friends. 
please leave a comment on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or on social media. If you like these interviews, you'll also love reading the Timmerman Report. Individuals can subscribe there for $149 a year to get original, analytical, thought-provoking articles that I produce year-round. Groups that would like to obtain internal sharing rights can also get a group discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, join me and Stefan Monsell for the long run. So I'm here at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with Stefan Bonsell, the co-founder and CEO of Moderna Therapeutics, a messenger RNA therapeutics developer. Welcome to the long run. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Stefan, you and I have been at this conference. I think we've met informally uh, over the years, probably four or five years now. Uh, it's a tradition, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and this is always an opportunity for companies like yours to kind of uh, lay out some goals for the year, uh, but also uh, reflect a bit on you know what you accomplished in the past year. Yeah. So, what what's your story here uh, at J.P. Morgan in 2018? Yeah, so I think the the big story for Moderna is the the company transformed tremendously in 2017. We put six new drugs in clinical trial. So today we have ten drugs in clinical trial, which is uh, a, a great number and uh, represents, I think, amazing. Uh, work that the team has done and we have nine additional drugs so a total of 19 nine additional drugs that are on the way to move to the clinic and so the big stories around therapeutics I think as you know we built Moderna going one vertical after the other we started in vaccines back in 2015 our first vertical to move to a clinic but 17 was really a big year for therapeutics we had our first phase one for therapeutics that was successful with AstraZeneca uh, for VEGF in the heart, met primary, secondary endpoint. This is moving to phase two any week now. Uh, we had our first oncology therapeutics moving to a clinic. We had our personalized cancer vaccine moving to a clinic. And we enabled uh, drugs to be delivered inside the liver, which allow us to do a lot of genetic you know, disease that are undruggable today. Uh, and so, so that's really the, the therapeutic is a big wor- world for Moderna in 2017. Okay, so um, you b- before we get into some more of the specifics of the Moderna story, you know, your high profile, you got some controversy, you've had some ups and downs. We'll cover that. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask just a little bit about you. Sure. Um, where um, you know people may tell the accent. Uh, you're from France. Yes. Uh, tell me about uh, where you come from. What What did your parents do when you were a kid? Yes. Yeah, so I was born and raised in the south of France in Marseille, so on the sea. Uh, so I, I literally the first photo of me after the clinic is on a sailing boat, in a little bassinet, you know, in the cockpit of a sailing boat because my dad is a sailing junkie. Um, and so I grew up, you know, uh, my mom is, uh, is a doctor, she's retired now, uh, my dad uh, was an engineer, also retired now, they both are cancer survivors, uh, and um, so I just had a great childhood, you know, super fun to live in the south of France, uh, you know, you can go sailing anytime you want, or to a beach, you know, windsurfing, you get in the car two hours and you're in the Alps, so like, you can ski pretty nicely. Uh, and close to Italy and Spain, so a lot of kind of long weekends in Italy and Spain. So, so, so great childhood. 
Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a younger brother. He's actually here too this week. He's running a biotech company in Paris. Okay, okay, so it runs in the family. He, he doesn't, he just happened to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did you get uh, excited about science or the pharmaceutical business? So it's interesting because I took the, a very strange road uh, in the sense uh, I really fell into IT as a kid. I used to code you know, when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, so we should say how old you are here. You're <laughs> mid-40s, right? Yeah, 45. Okay. Um, so that puts your childhood in the in, 80s. In the 80s, exactly. Uh, so as, you know, I had an Apple IIc as one of my first computers, which was a big deal because it was super expensive. Um, and so, uh, so I already got into, I would say, technology with capital T through the door of, of IT. Uh, and I think because my mom is an MD, I kind of didn't really study biology much in high school. I had pretty bad grades, actually, in biology in high school. Um, so you were a bit rebellious. Kind of, yes. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I went to engineering school, and I loved chemistry. I just loved chemistry. And so I love biochemistry. And when you do a lot of biochemistry, and you do that in the early 90s, you do a lot of genetics. And so I, I went back into biology uh, through genetics, through molecular biology. So on the side, uh, so I was in engineering school in Paris for, for undergrad. On the side, uh, I, I took a lot of classes uh, in genetics at the University of Biology and Medicine uh, next to my engineering school in Paris. Uh, and then I, went, I came to the US uh, to do a Master of Science uh, at Minnesota in biochemical engineering. Uh, so basically, I, I, you know, I grew you know, antibodies in CHO cells, E. coli, yeast systems you know, at the bench. Uh, I realized I was not made to do research. It was just the cycle time, the speed clock was not really made for me. Uh, and so I just went for a master's and then I went, I went to work. It was too slow. It was too slow. Uh-huh. So you got your master's and then what? So then uh, I had, in the meantime, I had been to Japan uh, for an internship and I fell in love with Japan. Uh, and so I found a job in Japan. And so I went from Minnesota straight to Tokyo. And I lived in Tokyo for almost four years. Uh, so I, I, I started for a company, a diagnostic company called Biomerieux, which later on, I'm sure we'll get to that, I, I ended up being CEO of. Uh, but so I started to work for that company as a sales rep uh, in Japan, selling medical equipment to food and pharma companies in the QC labs to make sure you don't get you know, bacteria in the food you eat or in the pharmaceutical products. Selling in Japan, do you speak Japanese? I used to speak pretty good Japanese, yeah. Uh-huh. I know like anything you do in life, you just need a certain set of vocabulary because it's always the same stuff and the same words you use. Uh, so I had worked really hard during my undergrad in, in France, my engineering school. I actually spent most of my time not studying engineering, but studying genetics and learning Japanese. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you're not intimidated by um, these uh, difficult subjects, I guess, that, you know... Yeah, I'm a believer that if you just work hard at something and you spend the hours, you can get pretty good at it. You don't have to be great at it. You can get pretty good at it. And so, and so what happened when I was in Japan, uh, uh, very quickly, because I was generating a lot of sales, I was uh, allowed to hire a couple reps. So I built a team in Japan. Uh, and then because Japan was doing really good, I was allowed by the head of Asia Pacific to actually start operations in South Korea, in Shanghai in the 90s, in Australia, in Singapore. So basically, I ended up still running Jap Japan, but running then the region. 
still based in Tokyo. Uh, and after a few years doing that, I said, mm, maybe it might be good to get a bit of business education because he was again still, you know, this South of France, Marseille engineer <laughs> who was doing sales and marketing uh, in a fast growing region because, you know, in the 90s, Asia was just, you know, rocking. Uh, and so I went to business school. Where did you do that? Uh, at Harvard. I wanted to go to the US because as being a European, I thought it was not a lot of value for me or not the same value if you want to do it in Europe. And so I, I thought it was, it was going to be great to both learn and just to be able to just be back in the US again. And so, uh, so I apply only to US business schools. So you quit BioMario? Yeah, so I quit BioMario uh, with great discussion, nice transition because it was school, it was all planned. Uh, so I quit BioMario. I went uh, two months traveling in Asia with backpack. And then I went to business school. So you do that for a couple of years. Yeah. And what's your what's your goal there at uh, HBS? I think, I mean, my goal at school was just learning. I mean, I felt super privileged to be in, a, in, a, in an environment where, you know, you had super smart people coming from all, all industries, all line of works from, you know, clinicians to lawyers, to bankers, to consultants, to engineers. I mean, you're really at everything. And so... I just feel felt almost like a kid in a candy store and just you know, learning, learning, learning. Uh, I'm a very curious guy, so it was just fun to be able to, to do that. Sometimes I joke with my wife that I wish I could go back again mm-hmm. uh, just for the fun of spending two years and learning stuff and being with smart people. Um, and so what is interesting is I was at HBS. I graduated in May 2000, which, as you know, is when the Nasdaq peaked. And so what was very funny time at the business school is that everybody wanted to be a dot-com entrepreneur, of course, uh-huh. as they always say in the press, you know, just look where the HBS grads are going and most probably that's the worst place to invest <laughs> because it just becomes you know, where everybody goes. Um, and so, so I thought about it a little bit and then I think it's the contrarian side in me. And I, lo- I love healthcare. I really love my, my years at BMIU. I, I love, you know, what I've learned, you know, in grad school and so on. And so... If everybody's going to to the tech world, and plus I started to build a bit of understanding of the, of the healthcare industry, I said, why don't I stay in healthcare? Nobody's going to healthcare. So it was a very funny time because all the big pharma companies at the time were recruiting on campus, but nobody was going. Uh, and so I talked to a few companies like you know, Pfizer, Medtronic, and Lilly. And I ended up at Lilly just because I loved the people there. Uh, I think I had a better, I don't remember exactly, but I think I had a better offer at Pfizer. But I just love the people at Lily. Uh, I love the products they had, and so so I joined Lily. So were you the only member of the HBS class? Uh, I think we were two. It's what's two of us. Uh huh. Usually, like yeah, maybe we recruit ten or fifteen a year. I think that year it was two of us. Usually, there's investment banking, consulting. Those are popular yeah. as well as dot com entrepreneurship. Yeah. But that at that time, the genome, the, the Human Genome Project was uh, in the news a lot yes. and coming to, down the home stretch. Mm-hmm. But pharma wasn't really. Using no. this kind of information. No. And the thing that was interesting is I intuitively initially wanted to go to a small company. Uh, and then my uncle, my mom's brother, who has been my mentor all my career, he, 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 he made his career in the tech world. Uh, he told me, don't go small. He's like, go big. I'm like, why would I go to a big company? Is it going to be boring? You know, BMR was still at two or three thousand people at the time when I was in Asia working for them. Uh, it was not started, but still small. And he said, look, uh, you have a lot of things to learn. You're going to learn a lot of things in big companies. You're going to have you know, great bosses. You're going to see big problems, you know, managing scale. And that's something that 
you're going to use all your career. You can always go small. You just need to decide to go small. And at any stage, you can go small. And so I, I only look at the end at big companies, which was kind of a bizarre thing for me. Uh, sometimes Nuba Afean, you know, with a co-founder and chairman of Moderna and CEO of Flagship, always laugh at me. It's like, I have no idea what you did in big companies for 10 years. You must have dreamed them totally crazy, uh, which I did sometimes, yes. But it's a learning opportunity. This, this is something I sometimes say to younger people who mm -hmm. ask for mm -hmm. advice. I, I think when you're starting out, you want to go someplace where you can learn a lot yes. and not be pigeonholed. Correct. So what, what, what was your experience there at Eli Lilly? I, I just loved it. The, again, company culture was amazing. Very, very people-driven. Uh, sometimes I used to joke that Lilly was not in the drug business. They were in the developing people business. Um, and so uh, I, I, I worked in the UK. I had a very quick stint in Indianapolis just to get trained in after HBS. Then I went to the UK because I wanted to go to manufacturing of all places. Um, and I wanted to go to manufacturing because as I'd been reading you know, the journal for you know, 10, 15 years before business school, uh, I had noticed that every pharma companies end up having manufacturing issues, all of them. And it, and, um, and it was the most bizarre thing. And, and I'm like, this must be preventable. So I wanted to go learn. I wanted to learn about the FDA, about CFR, just to learn you know, the GMP environment. And so I told Lily, I said, I'll come, but I need a manufacturing job. And they looked funny at me at the time because they wanted to give me my marketing job. Uh, and I said, but I want to be in the plant. I don't want to be you know, at corporate, just looking at files and folders and so on. I want to really be at the action where it is. And so they sent me to the UK. It was a great experience, I had a great team there. And then with funny, true, true funny story, uh, Lily had a big issue with FDA when I, when I was in the UK, but in Indianapolis. And so at the time, it was a time where Lily had a lot of biologics that were ready to launch, great clinical data. And um, because there was a warning letter on the injectable site that was making insulin, okay, all the biologics needed to be injected, injected as well. So they were planned to be coming out of the same plant. And the FDA basically told Lily, until you fix the problem on insulin, because it's a public health matter, because then it's Novo and Lily at the time owning most of the, of the supply of the US market, you won't launch any product. No biologics. No biologic launch. Where the CEO has been selling to the street for years and all those cool biologics are coming, FDA said, none are launching. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was. Manufacturing was important. Man F fix the, the brass tacks of how you make insulin yes. first, and then we can talk about this other cool exactly. stuff. Exactly, and it was exactly the right thing to do from a public health standpoint. FDA was taking care of a patient as we should. And so, um, so I was asked, like several other people that were posted you know, in plans around the world, to basically just move to the US and help. And so I moved to Indianapolis. Uh, and so it was two years of you know, craziness, uh, helping the team kind of deal with manufacturing issues. I had a great boss who went into you know, a small world, biotech and pharma, was brought by Henry Tamir to fix the Genzyme issues after the Genzyme, as you know, run into manufacturing issues too, you know, almost 10, 15 years later. A great, great gentleman of the name of Scott Canute. And so, uh, so help the team there. And then I told Lily at the time, I said, hey, I'm happy to do one more job in manufacturing, but I really want to go back to the business. And so I said, deal, you come, you help. If everything works well, you go back to the business. And so then I ended up becoming country manager for Belgium. And so I moved to a family from Indy uh, to Brussels. And uh, it was a great experience. I was very close to, you know, 
uh, customers. I was in the field with the reps like a day a week. Um, and uh, we launched new products like Alimta, you know, for cancer, Simbalta for CNS. Uh, we launched Cialis, which was a really fun product to launch uh, because Viagra was, all, of course, the, the only product at the time on the market. Uh, we had a lot of pricing issues with uh, the government. You know, Belgium has very low prices. So we spent a lot of time negotiating prices, even like for breast cancer, the indication of Genzyme breast cancer. It was like a, a year and a half fight just to get it reimbursed, which was crazy. It was the only country in Europe that was not reimbursed. So a lot of learnings there. Um, and at that time, it was one of those funny things that happened in life uh, where uh, Alain Merieu, who was at the time the chairman of Biomerieu and the founder of Biomerieu, uh, called me out of the blue one day. We just kept in contact, you know, like Christmas letter, you know. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm coming to Brussels to see my family. I mean, can we have lunch? I'm like, sure. So we have lunch and literally very French, you know, we talk about politics and uh, business and what's happening in the world and so on, the world lunch. And literally between cheese and dessert, he just dropped, hey, we are looking for a new CEO. I've been advised to, you know, throw a very wide net. Of course, you are way too young. Yeah, <laughs> to how old were you? I was 32 at the time. 32. <laughs> to have a chance. And, and and all you were at this point was sort of the, the bright young French uh, sales guy who had some success over there in Japan. Yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of a strange, it, it, it stood out, I'm sure, Yeah. In, in his mind. But, you know, got an HBS degree, did some lovely work. Yeah, so it's interesting because... So I went through a process. I mean, of course, history, just to work fast, I ended up getting the job. Uh, and when I got the job, I asked him, I said, why are you giving me a job? Because I'm sure you had much more experience, you know, senior uh, uh, candidate for the job. And he said, you guys have very similar skills on most things, like, you know, business, finance, sales, and so on. The thing that stood out was manufacturing. You are the only candidate that has manufacturing experience. And we're making medical devices. Uh, by the way, at the time that I joined, I was aware. Biomerio had a warning letter on the US site. Uh, so I had the chance to read the warning letter on the FDA website before saying yes for the job because I wanted to know how bad it was. Uh-huh. Uh, because sometimes it's so bad that it's going to take you five years to dig yourself out of a hole. Um, and so it was bad, but not too bad. And so, so I took the job. And week two in the job, I was in a plane to the US to the site because I wanted to see for myself. Uh, and I surprised the team because I went to see the utility room, you know, on the roads everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The team was surprised like the new CEO is in the utility room of a plant. What is he doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, manufacturing. I mean, there, I'm sure there's a reason why there weren't a lot of candidates with that in their background. It's not a glamorous uh, no. set of tasks um, that, you know, I don't think a lot of people raise their hand no. early in their career to try to, you know, roll, get into the nitty gritty of this. Yeah. And it's funny because, again, at the end of the day, we're all make, here to make medicines, and of course, you have to invent the medicine, which is you know, super hard, it's research, and you have to you know, develop it in the clinic and so on. But to be able to make consistently a high-quality medicine for a long time, that you really build the process and the infrastructure and the culture, is really important, and most organizations don't understand it. Presage Biosciences has a micro-injector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. 
Okay, so you go to BioMirror and it's um, uh, you're there for a number of years. You're the CEO. It, it, it grows a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, from what to what? Oh, I don't remember the numbers now. Look, what I remember is we grew 10% excluding uh, foreign exchange rates every year for five years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And in terms of like global operation, Yeah, people... so it was it was a global company. We had four presence in 42 countries. So we had BMI teams in 42 countries. I think 10 plants around the world, 10 or 11 labs, R&D labs around the world. So it's really a global company, publicly traded. So it was kind of a, a big jump. <laughs> yeah, so um, you're in the deep end of the pool. You start this job at 32. You end up in, you know, 37, your late late 30s. How, uh, how did you make your next step? So it's interesting. So when I was at Biomario, uh, one of the things we did is we did a lot of acquisition of technology company, like early stage, kind of trying to plug the holes to complement our internal R&D. Biomario was investing a lot in R&D, and that's what I learned from the Biomario. Uh, I always uh, uh, think about Biomario very similar from a culture standpoint to Roche. She's, you know, family, you know, majority shareholder, several generation long-term view on things, has been in science for several generations before. So I've learned kind of a hard way that science takes time and biology is hard. Monsieur Mayer used to joke, say, yeah, over projects, they ended up taking twice as long and costing twice as much as what we were told at the beginning of a project. It's like, that's just like this biology, Stefan, you just like, you be used to it. And so, um, and so what was interesting is, um, so this Mr. Mario, he would have been like the chairman of the board. Yeah, he was the chairman of the board. Working with you as the CEO. As the CEO, exactly. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, we meet regularly, talk about the business and so on. And it was, it was great for me because uh, first he had a lot of experience. He started the companies 40 years before. So he saw a company from day one. Um, he, he had a lot of experience because of different age. He, he had his name on the company name. I did not. So he was kind of a very kind of you know, great, great thing to me in terms of, you know, coaching and, and mentoring. And it's funny now, I, I mean, I went to visit with him just before Christmas because I happened to be Christmas in France this year. We flipped with my wife being American, one year in France, one year in the U.S. And I, I went I went to see him in Lyon. And I told him, I said, you have no idea about things I've done at Moderna because of what I learned from you, uh, how you, you built and the culture you had at Biomaria. So anyway, so we did a lot of acquisition at at, uh, at Biomario, or 10, if my memory is correct, so kind of two per year. Mm -hmm. uh, and technology, so early stage staff to plug the holes we had in R&D or to complement what we were doing in R&D. And um, through that process, we must have looked at, I don't know, 40, 60, 70 companies, you know, like, like you look at a lot of stuff before picking the ones you like. Uh, we made our share of mistakes, obviously. We made one or two acquisitions I wish we had not made. So we just cleaned our mess after. Uh, but uh, through that process, I got to meet a lot of VCs in the US because uh, two further companies we bought were in the US. And so I got to meet a lot of VCs uh, and uh, get to see them regularly. And then the phone call started to ring. Say, hey, Stefan, hey, we have this super cool company. Would you be interested in running it? Not just buying it. Yeah, running it. So that became an interesting discussion. And, uh, and it was initially mostly on the diagnostic side. And then people realized that through the early years, I spent quite a number of years in you know, pharmaceuticals. And so then it started to be on the biotech side where people say, hey, we have those cool molecules and so on. And most of the phone calls were interesting, but they were mostly, you know, kind of a typical biotech company, you know, one or two products. I'm not a gambler, you know. When you look at the probability of technical success of molecules, you say, oof. 
one or two assets, and the chance that you go home with nothing is pretty high. And I'm like, oof. So I was always kind of declining politely. And one day, I clearly changed my life. It's the day when Nubar called me. Nubar, a fan of flagship ventures. Yeah. yeah. So I've I, I known Nubar for a few years. We've actually been on the board together of one of the flagship companies. Um, and uh, Nubar called me. Uh, and and he's like, come, come and see me. And so I went to see Nubar. And it was easy. I was a few blocks away from Nubar. Um, and he showed me the first experiment, which was going to become Moderna, which was an experiment coming from, you know, the Rossi Labs at Harvard, uh, showing that they had injected, you know, uh, mRNA-encoded human hippo in a mouse, muscle, and they had found in the mouse blood human hippo, which you can differentiate because of the amino acid is different from mouse hippos. It was really the human version, not the mouse version. And the red cells of a mouse, you know, were going through the roof, like if it was you know, kind of hippo from Amgen. And I remember looking at the data, you know, on the table and telling Nubar, this is fake, this is not possible. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, we have all been trained, you know, in grad school that mRNA will never be a drug. It's super unstable, it's immunogenic, it doesn't look like a cool drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Nubar and was very, very good. Uh, and I'm thankful that he was very good because I might have just walked away from what became Moderna. He's, uh, he told me, look, Stefan, you're a big company guy, you spend your time saying no. Because your teams have more ideas than you guys have money to invest. It's true of any company in the world. Um, but our job here at Flagship is to invent the future. Uh, we don't like to do things that other people do. We like to do things that are really you know, super innovative. Uh, of course, it's more risky. Uh, and we love platforms. So uh, I'm not asking you to believe this is true. Uh, but just because you are here and out of friendship, nobody totally flipped me like a a pancake, or I should say a crepe, actually, uh, <laughs> by saying that, because I, I let my guard down, and he said, uh, what if this is true? What does he mean if this is true? And very nobody, you know, kind of very humble, low-key, undermining, he went, look, because he knew my background, Nubai and I are both chemical engineers. Uh, I mean, biochemical engineers. Uh, and uh, so he knew my background, uh, and he said, what is if this is true? And then we went crazy because I let my guard down and we said, look, if this is true, we're going to be able to do protein that nobody can do because they're inside the cells. Because the mRNA gets inside the cells, makes the protein right there. So we're going to be able to do a lot of protein that nobody can do. And, you know, around two-thirds of a human protein, the proteome, are intracellular protein. It's only a third that goes into the bloodstream, like, you know, insulin and EPO, where the biotech industry has been able to drug, you know, in the last 40 plus years. So I'm like, wow, it's going to be a massive product opportunity. So then it's going to be a true platform. And when you think about it in this industry, unlike other industries, we really never had platforms. I mean, people use a lot of word platform because it's very nice marketing-wise for investors. But for me, a platform is not when you automatize and robotize that you can do a lot of the same thing. That's not a platform. That's industrialization. For me, a platform is like in the tech world where if you have one product, you change a few little things and you get another product very quickly with very, very low risk between product one and product two. And so because mRNA you know, is nucleic acid, it was very clear to me, it's like, geez, if this is going to work, you know, it's going to be really hard to make the first drug in every application you're going to go after. But the second and the third and the fourth drug are going to be just changing the sequence of the letters on the message and you're done. So it was like, and then Satanubar is going to be less risk than making a small or large molecule. And that, the good thing that I had at Lily, I was super lucky is Lily at both biologics and small molecules. So I learned 
both the plus and minuses of those two things. Because when I was in manufacturing, after my, my time in the UK when I was at corporate, I spent most of my time working with development guys to make sure that we had the right manufacturing technology to be able to accommodate the products moving to development and moving to commercialization. So I spent most of my time with development. So not only is this uh, theoretically a platform in which, as you say, you can uh, change a few nucleic acids here and get a different protein, a different mm -hmm. drug, but um, you don't have some of the same concerns with manufacturing. You don't have to spend years and tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in biologics manufacturing, which is complicated and difficult. Uh, essentially, the, the body becomes the drug-making factory. Which is one of the many elements that Nuba and I, again, as both biochemical engineers were looking at each other, we said, geez, it's the same process for everything. Because, again, it's only the order of the letters that changes. So the way we do today as Moderna, you know, the vaccine, you know, for flu or the vaccine for Zika or the VEGF for the heart for AZ, same process. So um, it, he plants the hook, so to speak, here. Uh, he gets you to let your guard down. Uh, this would have been uh, what year? 2010? 20, 2011. 2011. 2011. Okay. So uh, you decide to like quit uh, BioMary. What did your wife say about this? So it's, it's funny. So first I had to convince myself. So I just told her that it was a crazy idea from Nuba and so on. She had heard the name Nuba a few times uh, before. Um, so first I had to convince myself. So I took a few days off from BioMary because, of course, it's a publicly traded company. So we do things by the book, obviously. Took a few days off, I go to the Rossi Lab at Harvard, I go talk to a lot of people that are coming together as a company, you know, is being formed. Uh, so Ken Chen, you know, who, who is a gentleman who came with the use of VEGF, uh, mRNA, uh, with Jack Stotka, who is Nobel Prize of Medicine 2006, who is the chair of our, um, uh, sorry, 2009, who is the chair of our scientific advisory board since day one, and still is as of today. So I talk to a lot of scientists, I go to a lab, I try to just figure out what am I missing. Um, and so when I start to not find what I'm missing, it doesn't mean, I was very clear in my head that I might still be missing something, I'm just not saying it. Um, and so yeah, so I start talking to my wife, and I have an amazing wife. I've been very lucky in life in many ways, but I have a really amazing wife. And, and she, she's a photographer, so she doesn't understand science very much. And so, uh, so I try to explain to her, what it could mean if this was going to be true and it's going to be working. I make sure to tell all the risks that everybody until now thought that mRNA will never be a drug, so it's kind of really pretty a steep mountain we're going to be climbing. Um, and, but she also understand the impact on patients it could have by being able to drug all those diseases. And the, the example I used with her at the time, which we are now doing, is the genetic rare disease. Because, you know, for somebody who doesn't understand science, understand that if a gene is damaged, if you can make the mRNA coding for the protein of that gene, give it to a kid, then uh, in theory, you should be able to get the kids you know, being healthy again. Yeah, well, it's a form of gene therapy, Correct. you could say, without yeah. the viral vectors. So without viral vector, without getting into a nucleus, so a lot of uh, nice things that we liked. And so, um, so my wife said, yeah, you have to do it. Actually, she, it's funny, she flipped it. She didn't say, I'm okay, you're doing it. She said, you have to do it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I remember where, you know, uh, I live in Boston, as you know, you know, we're in a bar having a bottle of wine because every time we made big kind of decisions together over the years, we usually have a babysitter coming, taking care of a kid. I have two, two, two daughters, they're a bit older now. And we just go out and spend a calm, you know, four or five hours just chatting with a bottle of wine. And so she said, you have to do it. I'm like, why? She's like, you are so stubborn 
that if this thing can work, you'll find out a way to make it work. So um, you, you take the leap, become an entrepreneur, um, and this is 2011. Uh, this is very stealthy. Flagship's not saying anything publicly about this. Maybe there's like one paper from the Rossi Lab published, I think. Um, and I remember writing one of the first stories, but you, you kind of came like this bolt out of the blue with uh, a deal with AstraZeneca, $240 million up front to develop mRNAs against something like 40 different indications, cardiovascular, metabolic, and a couple of other things. I Oncology. Forget. Oncology. I mean, people looked at this and said, who the hell are these guys and why are they getting so much money? Um, what? You can't make mRNA as a drug. What just happened here? Yeah, so uh, so first, almost, almost two years of work happened in between. So we started truly operations and scaling up and hiring people in the summer of 11. And we focused initially on, you know, trying to ask very hard questions first. So again, coming from the pharma world, I was paranoid about safety. I was already freaking out about, is that thing going to be safe? And so we ran, you know, a rat talk study very early to pushing the doors at very high levels. We go into monkeys very early because I've never been too much, you know, excited by mice. Again, I learned that at Lee. And um, even to, to the surprise of some of my board members at the beginning, because as you know, it's very expensive to do monkey experiments. And so the idea of using a very raw early technology, totally untested to go into monkeys, people thought it was you know, kind of crazy. Uh, and actually we tried two drugs in monkey at the same time, because I told myself, if we do only one, everybody's gonna tell me, both investors, potential investors and big pharma, Everybody's going to tell me, yeah, I just got lucky. So I said, I need a second one. <laughs> so we did two drugs in parallel in monkeys. We did a rat talk study. And we did, I, did, I set a crazy challenge for the team who totally thought that was crazy. Is uh, I asked them to do 100 different protein in mice. 100 different proteins in mice. Yes. And I pick 100 just out of my ad. It's just thin air. Just 100 is a nice, it's a big number. Yeah. Uh, and so the team had to make all the money by hand at the time. And now, you know, we have robots making everything. But at the time, it was piping by hand. And then they had to develop all the ELISA assays to read those proteins in animals. <laughs> so it was, very, it was just a massive amount of work. Uh, people were working around the clock and so on. And so, so we did that. And then the other thing we did is it was very clear to me. Uh, I love history. It's one of the good things about you know, French education or European education is to teach you a lot of history. <laughs> and so I ended up learning uh, to like history and to really value not reinventing the wheel. And so if you study biotech history, and I'm really in biotech history, going back to kind of Genentech, and then, you know, uh, Amgen and all the, the companies that followed, is none of those early companies made it alone at the beginning. You know, we all think about Roche when we think about Genentech, but for all of those of us that are old enough, it was Lily. Eli Lilly with insulin. And growth Wait, hormone. Yeah. The first two drugs, the first two biologics approved by FDA, you're correct, was insulin first and then growth hormone, made with genetic technology for Eli Lilly. Lilly had the global rights, commercial rights for those two products. And then Roche was a smarter company. <laughs> we, we know did the big partnership US or US with Roche and then ended up buying the company. Uh, Amgen, you know, at the deal outside the US with J&J. &J. And that 
kind of made that amgen to make epo to make epo and so seeing this and knowing how expensive it costs and how long it is and how difficult it is to make medicine which again is a good thing i mean like clearly i was not like i think sometimes people can be a bit naive in biotech that you know with 10 people and a dog you can really get a drug to market uh, when you know all the things you have to do uh, in terms of both discovery you know process development analytical again to get good product in manufacturing mm-hmm. so you don't get stuck you know and with a not approvable letter <laughs> when you have good phase free data that's pretty bad um, and so and the capital so i was very fixated almost obsessed by i needed to get a deal done and so uh, so in september of 2012 so the company is around a year old at one of the board meetings, I asked the director, I said, look, I would love to get you okay to go partner cardiology. And the reason is I'm like, look, cardiology is very hard. A lot of easy targets have been already done. Uh, the cost of development is, is obscene. So we, we're never going to do in the next five to 10 years a cardiology drug with our own capital. We're not. So this asset is worth zero to us. We're going to do nothing with it. So I said, can I have you okay to go get a deal done? Because anything I can get... We might have more shots on goal, more learning. We might get a bit of cash up front. Um, and so the board said, sure, go, go try to, to find a way to, to partner cardiology. And so I get on the road uh, and I talked only to the, the big five guys in cardio. Because one of my premise was, if I do a deal with a 20th company in cardiology, first, they won't have the scale of the capabilities uh, to help me. He won't have the same brand impact in terms of positive brand to Moderna to have, you know, the 26 player that she said. Uh, one of the top players. And so I talked talk to the top five companies. I want to protect the innocence, but you no know, other company I called, uh, I got connected with the chief scientific officer, via Bob Langer, who is a you know, co-founder of Moderna. And of course, knows everybody. And so I called this gentleman, and he's like, don't even get on the plane. We don't do preclinical new technology stuff. So save a plane ticket, save a day. Don't come even see me and say, okay, well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so this cross on the list, you know, we're done. Um, and so, uh, and so we started to get, uh, a lot of traction with the AZ team. Uh, and I realized this was serious when in the middle of August, Martin McKay was at the time, the head of R&D of AZ uh-huh. came with his entire staff. So Martin came first, I think bio, it was bio that year that was in Boston in 2012, 2012. And Martin uh, came, uh, introduced by Ken Chen. Because you know, Ken has known Martin for years, you know, Ken cardiologist, you know, MGH Harvard, uh, and tell Martin, hey, you need to see that thing because that's really, really cool. Ken was working on BHF, of course. So Martin came uh, and we showed him a lot of data. Uh, he was clearly impressed. He looked, I've never seen something like this. And by the way, he said, I've never believed in platforms. A lot of biotech companies say they have platforms and they don't. And it's like, this really looks like a platform because molecular biology. And so Martin said, I want, my team has to show, to see that. And he really surprised me, because I think Bio was in June, uh, in middle of August, middle of, no, people on vacation, right, left-hand corner. He comes with the entire staff, everybody. Mene was there, Baija was there, the entire team was there. And we show him all the data a bit more because we had two more months of data. And, uh, and then we had very good feedback, and Martin said, uh, we should send a bigger team. And so they sent a team like of 30 people. 30. Yeah, 30, like more than were the employees at the time, uh, to to really get their head. They wanted to kind of buy in, you know, big big company stuff, buying of the organization. It was not due diligence that came later. It was much more fun. Uh, it was just kind of, again, 
talking, showing the data, talking about the science or another CD and so on. And so they ended up at a stage where they were very serious. And so I asked Martin, so what do we do? And Martin said, well, if you are willing to partner out of cardiology, I'm interested to partner out of cardiology. And so, uh, so we discussed, it was quite interesting discussions. Uh, and at some stage, I told Martin, so in the meantime, Soyo, Pascal Soyo, the CEO of AstraZeneca, arrived as CEO of AstraZeneca. I think he was on. new in that job. He arrived around October. So we started this in June, August, October, Pascal Soyo arrives. And one day I remember we were talking with Martin about the, the deal. And I asked Martin, I said, how much can Pascal approve a loan for a deal? And he tells me 100 million bucks. Why? I say, well, I need to meet Pascal now. And he's like, why? Because Pascal will have to defend the deal to the board because he will be north of 100 million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty audacious. You're, you're thinking a big dollar amount. Yes. He, he, you, you saw like Martin was excited. Martin, not only Martin was excited, but everybody was excited. And what I remembered from Lily, which is again, I could never have done this deal if I had not been at Lily, because what I learned there. In big companies, it's everything by committee. Everybody's protecting their hiney. Uh, and so, but I always told my team as we were preparing and thinking about the next step for the negotiations, to me to figure out, they're in a in, in big meeting room, there are 30 of them, you both have you know, management and some you know, very strong scientists, experts, and people are going around the room. Hey, Luke, what do you think of the modern technology? And you're going to say what you think, and you're going to say some good stuff, and you're going to be cautious. You can always find a hundred reasons why it won't work. Correct. And then they're going to look to the guy next to you. And Martin, if he's the head of a company, will ask, hey, Joe, what do you think of Moderna? And so what I told the team is we need to get to a place where everybody gets comfortable that it's risky, but it's a risk worth taking. So I told the team, don't oversell it, don't push it. Be very honest about what we know and what we don't know. Because it, they can only do this deal if they trust that we have told them everything that we know and that the team is capable and honest, trustworthy, that we can work together because it's going to be hard to make medicine. Again, another thing I learned at Lilly. And so, and so, uh, so going back to, to Pascal Sorio, so one day, uh, so when we had a discussion with Martin, he said, okay, so, and so he set up a, a breakfast uh, in Gettysburg uh, with Pascal in December of 2012. And so I met Pascal for the first time. We have breakfast for three hours. And I need to give Pascal a lot of credit. He got it in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like everything, like everything kind of crystallized in his head. I saw it in his eyes. He got, he got everything. And, uh, and then we finalized negotiation, which was ups and downs. So I think this deal, nobody would tell you, this deal almost failed 10 times. But we were you know, in big dead ends, couldn't resolve it. And when we were pedal back, you know, and renegotiate and so on. And so, so we got the term sheet, okay, and then we had the due diligence, which was fun because they sent so many people, because it was for a quarter billion dollars. It was a lot of money. It made a big splash. Now, I want to kind of fast forward through, like, a whole series of dominoes fell after this. Like, you've, you've started lining up partners like Merck and Alexion and the DARPA. Uh, a lot of people from a lot of different parts mm -hmm. of the biomedical enterprise got very interested once AZ was in there mm -hmm. uh, in a big way. Uh, you raised a ton of money. I mean, I don't even know. It's over over a billion dollars of equity. Two oh, billion. So it's two billion, but one point one of equity so far. One point one equity, and then two billion total when you factor in all the partner upfronts and near term milestones yeah. and all that. 
So um, this, um, you know, uh, made you a unicorn, <laughs> a privately held, a preclinical for a long time, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar valuation. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people said, this invited a lot of skepticism, a lot of scrutiny. You hadn't published, uh, you know, hadn't told people mm-hmm. much about mm-hmm. how you mm-hmm. were solving some of these mRNA challenges. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, the, the immunogenicity, uh, that, that, that is a hard one. Mm-hmm. I know you're continuing to work through. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you ever Google yourself. No, I don't. I shouldn't, maybe. <laughs> but I did before this okay. interview, and uh, you may be pleased or chagrined to, to see that when you Google Stefan Bonsell, uh, you get four other people that people also search for. Elon Musk. Oh, boy. Jeff Bezos. Daniel Eck of Spotify. And Elizabeth Holmes. Now, uh, some of those folks, I imagine you might you know, admire and, and read about and study. Uh, others, you know, <laughs> represent more cautionary tales in entrepreneurship, shall we say. Uh, you, you've heard this comparison, mm-hmm. right, to, to the Theranos. Mm-hmm. People wondering, is this just a bunch of smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. that you got there at mm-hmm. Moderna? So how do you... Um, you're in this period where, you know, a lot of people got excited about mRNA, but then there's some disillusionment. Maybe it's not living up to that uh, really exciting, imaginative mm-hmm. set of possibilities. Mm-hmm. What do you do to, to manage this thing through um, th- these years? Yeah, so I think one of the things I've learned, uh, and my wife always remind me when it's a tough time, and there have been a lot of tough times over many years, not only Moderna, pre-Moderna, our advice is always put the head down and do the work. And so, I mean, we know who we are, we know what we have, we knew what we knew at the time and what we didn't know. Um, and so we've decided very pers- purposefully to not publish at the beginning, just to protect the company. Uh, it was very clear to us as we talked about partnership before, uh, with Yamgen and Genetech Analogy and so on. It was very clear to me that to build this company to the vision we have of Moderna is going to take a lot of money, much more than $2 billion. And so one of the things I worried a lot in the early days is a CEO of a big pharma company to get it. And, and chasing put, you down like a dog. And to put $200 million on it when I had, because pre-AZ, remember, for 18 months, we had no money. The first round of Moderna, everybody forgets, was $2 million. The A of Moderna was $2 million. The B was 7 and the C was 25 Okay, that was all pre-AZ, the A, B, C, pre-AZ. So the A is really the seed round, if you want. Um, and so we, we, we were at a time where I was worried that if a big pharma CEO were to put 2 or $400 million and the team, I had no team and a team of people who know what they are doing on it, they will just kill us. And that was one of my big, big, you know, paranoia. And so we had no website, as you said earlier, until the AZ deal came. And the funny story, if you want to know why did we do a website, is because one day I woke up in sweat, we had to prove a term sheet. I'm like, geez, one of the AZ board members is gonna go and, and Google Moderna. They won't find a website. And they at the board meeting, when Pascal is gonna go for a quarter billion dollar off to his board, I say, what is that? There's a company with no website into this world. We're going to get a quarter million dollars. And so that's so why we did a website. 
put up a bare bones site. Yeah, it was like a 10 page or whatever. Yeah. We just rushed doing it uh, because that was my, my worry. If the board member would derail the deal in the boardroom because we had no website, which was just going to be so ironic for me trying to protect the company by having no website before. And so, so we spent the time where we say we just want to do a science right. But we should say, so why we didn't want to go public? You know, when I see, you know, for example, the CRISPR company all out early, I'm like, this is crazy. Science is hard. You have to get great people. You have to make mistakes. You have to break things. Uh, it's not a linear process. Doing scientific research is never a linear process. It's two step forward, a step back, two step forward, a step on the right, two step on the left. And you have to do that all the time. And you need to be able to do that where you only have to tell your board and a few investors. And we have our ups and downs. We've had our technical challenges, trust me. But every time we had, we just you know, put our head down. We had enough capital because we always wanted to have a lot of runway. And, and that was important for us because we said, when we're going to have technical challenges, we need to be able to see them through. What were the big technical challenges that maybe uh, you didn't fully appreciate in the, in the beginning? So, so a lot of them, one thing, and it's a bit ironic for a biochemical engineer, uh, Making a money super pure is really hard. It's really hard. Um, you have to do, we have to invent everything. Not only how you make it, but how you test for it. How do you test for purity, for potency? New assets. Everything, new assets. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have 40 years of industry, you know, where paper published and patent filed and then expired that you can go reuse, uh, where you have guidelines from FDA. You have none of those things. So you have to go invent everything. So. Uh, that took a lot of work, a lot of time. Uh, on the biology side, uh, a mouse is not a monkey. <laughs> and uh, an in vitro is not in vivo. And so it's funny when we have employees joining Moderna now, you know, sometimes they get very excited with in vitro data. And they come to me you know, with this new cool in vitro data. And when they do, I'm like, that's really interesting. Show me monkey data. <laughs> Now, there's also this question of focus. Whenever you've got a, a true platform mm -hmm. that can do a lot of yeah. things. Now, no company can do everything. Correct. No matter how much money you've got. Correct. Um, you have to focus. Yes. Um, and I know that you tried to create these kind of little silo type companies mm -hmm. that would focus on, say, oncology or yeah. infectious disease or something. And then you, after a while, you scrapped that and folded them all back up under the Moderna tent. Mm -hmm. What did you try there? What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that's, uh, it was very interesting. So this was post... So after the AZ deal, which happened in March 13, we decided to raise more money, which was a bit of a totally contrarian move at the time. It was one of those crazy genius nobody. <laughs> so we raised another round, uh, $125 million, I think. Uh, and then we did the election deal. So if you think about Moderna, we went from March 1st of 2013 with literally $20 million in the bank to January 15, JP Morgan, 2014, $500 million in the bank. So it was like a you know, massive transformation of the company, at least on the balance sheet, yeah. because we had to hire the people and so on. And so at that time, we started to think about, you know, which we do a lot at Moderna. We love to play the movie backward. One of our favorite uh, strategic process is describe Moderna 10 years from now, or a version of what Moderna could be because there's so many versions you can think of Moderna, and play the movie backward to understand what needs to happen when, uh, so that you have a chance to get to that endpoint. Uh, and in one of that exercise, after having half a billion dollars, we said, geez, is there a world where we can do all those drugs 
in one entity, in one company. And at the time, we thought, geez, we might not. And so we came up with that idea to kind of have those dedicated teams that will be doing R and D across one of our verticals. And, uh, and so we, we put in place those, those ventures, as we call them, uh, and we hire people, you know, staff them and so on. Um, and what we learned, which we explained when we unfolded them uh, last summer, in summer 17, end of the summer, is we've learned that because the platform is still so raw, the technology is still so raw, because when you think about it, we've only been at it six years, and most technology takes a 20-year time cycle to mature. We... Um, the most important interface was not between R and D within a, a vertical. It was between R, the platform R, the platform discovery, and the biology discovery. That was the interface that was the most important, and we totally missed it. And so when we realized this was missing and I was actually slowing down Moderna, we just decided to buy the bullet and to fix the mistake we created. And so we re-merged everything back into one entity. Uh, and and we just move forward. It's the biology. <laughs> it's the biology. <laughs> yeah. Um, now you you raised a lot of money. Um, was there too much money? Do, does does too much money sometimes uh, feed a lack of focus or discipline? I I think it's about discipline and focus is about culture. Um, and so. I mean, the way we think about the problem is in the following way, which is, what do we need to fund to do it well? We need to fund the platform, give or take 100 million bucks per year. That includes process innovation and so just kind of technology formulation and so on. Drug discovery, 100 million bucks per year. Why? Because we say we want to try the technology in a few different areas. And now we have five articles as we speak. Uh, then drug development, as you know, is very expensive endeavor. Then GNA, you know, we, just last year, to give you a sense, $14 million of IP prosecution. $14 million. One four One million four. dollar of yeah. just prosecution, just filing patents. Uh, uh, IT, so we're investing a lot in digital, which you know, is for another day, another discussion. But we, I think, yeah, it's around $15 million of just IT expenditure. I want to come back to this point you raised about culture. We've talked about this before, um, and, and, it, and how it relates to patents as well. That uh, I think you, you have this kind of uh, somewhat unusual view that patents, I mean, they're important. Obviously, you're spending money on them. You're, you're, you're uh, putting together an estate across a, a wide variety of areas. But they can be a little overrated. Mm -hmm. And that culture and a speed of learning, yes. like a company that is like relentlessly in forward body lean mode yes. uh, and, and uh, has that... It, that that Silicon Valley kind of killer instinct. Mm -hmm. I know you've gone out there and studied this. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from that experience and tried to instill in Moderna to kind of create a company that can almost like fly above IP in, yeah. in some respects? So so I want to be careful. Let's talk about the IP for a second, then I'll go into what I learned from Silicon Valley because we are a big believer in IP because we have to respect you know, people's intellectual property. The piece that I think is unique about Moderna is because we are the beginning of an S-curve, what we've invented last year might be irrelevant this year, just because of how quickly we learn and we progress with technology. So that's what we meant in our previous discussions uh, that we had together, is that sometimes what has been crazy is we look at a patent we filed a year or two ago, 
And some of them would look at them and say, yeah, that was cute. Old news. It's totally irrelevant. Exactly. Useless, irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, because of how much we have improved technology. Uh, but no, we take patent very seriously. Uh, uh, and if you want, I didn't have a similar strategy at Bumeria because we were on the top of the S-curve at Bumeria because he was diagnostic, you know, all industry and so on. Uh, but here what is was very interesting is exactly that, which is what we invent now makes what we invented two or three years ago irrelevant. Uh, so on, on the on the Silicon Valley side, the piece that was giving me angst in the post-AZ, you know, post-Alexion deal, kind of early 2014 timeframe when we had all that money and we had to scale the company. So if you want, having been at Lilly and at Biomario, I had a very clear idea of where to go, kind of what functions to add, how to add critical mass in different departments and so on. But the piece that gave me a lot of angst as we started to recruit a lot of people is with basically almost no HR function, with no training function. And, and the company was learning so much because we just spoke about the S-curve and just the velocity of the learning. And you had people joining the company. And either they came from industry and they barely knew how to spell mRNA, or they came from academia and they knew a lot about mRNA, but they knew nothing how to make a drug. They had not been through that experience of being at a ride like this where they went up that S-curve. Correct. Maybe they were at the top before, or maybe they are at the very beginning before, but not climbing it. Correct. And the piece that started to give me a lot of angst is I told the team, say, we are not setting our new employees for success because they need so much ba- basics about the science, company processes, culture, and so on, and they're just learning on the fly, and that's not good. And the analogy I took with the team at the time, I say, you must feel to a new employee because there's so much to learn. Like, you know, jumping on the Shinkansen with it not stopping at the station. So it must not be a nice feeling. And so I talked to a few new employees who actually uh, echoed uh, that we need to do something about onboarding. And the pace at which we were going made me realize that, you know, what is done traditionally in biotech or pharma company was not very relevant to the hyper-growth mode we were in in terms of hiring, you know. I mean, we were doubling the company like, you know, every six months or 12 months. Uh, I remember the the first uh, hiring class of January 2014 with more new employee in that room that day than we had nine months before when we did the AZ deal. It was just crazy. And so, uh, so I went to the Valley to try to think about and to learn about how do hyper-growth companies do it? How do they onboard people? Uh, and so I went to a few companies like Google, you know, and Facebook and Netflix and a couple more. And I went with the same questionnaire. So in the plane, going to, you know, to San Francisco, I just wrote a set of, you know, very simple questions to ask myself. And I went to see all of those companies and ask exactly the same question to everybody. And I spent several hours there, you know, meeting both people in line management, in HR. And it was fascinating first how different the companies were doing it. Like you went from Netflix where... The onboarding was two hours, <laughs> where you had a Facebook, where it was five weeks. So I was just blown away. They took employees five weeks from the day they joined, take them five weeks before they go start to work. Uh, and there was a week in, I think, week two or week three, where it's just a culture week. So for a week, you just have people coming and telling stories that represent the culture of a company. And what they care about, um, and so, 
with all these different thoughts and ideas, I came back and so I share my, my, my learnings with the team and we said to put a, uh, in place a plan uh, that we have always, you know, uh, worked on and improved on and always do that. Where anybody who joins Moderna usually joins the first Monday of the month because that's the hiring day. Uh, if I'm in town, I always do the welcome. We have some videos for onboarding before on the secured website that they got access to once they signed the offer. And, uh, and they spend at least four days just full-time, just getting to see and they see the whole enterprise, they learn about the science, the products that we have in the company, the diseases that we care about and stuff like that. Being the culture guardian is a big part of, of being the CEO. I, I get that. Um, so I, I know we got to wrap up. I just have one last question. Now that we think about, you know, it's the beginning of the year, it's 2018, you look ahead at JP Morgan, what's the, what's the headline that you would like to be able to write in your press release next year? I think next year is about uh, a few things. It's about, you know, focusing on the execution of a development pipeline, you know, 19 products now, and uh, 18 is going to be the year of phase two. As we just said, you know, AZ is going to start their phase two any week now for the VHF program. Uh, I think we'll continue to see an explosion of development candidates because of the platform. Uh, and we're going to focus mostly on rare diseases now that we cracked how to get them on inside the liver safely and you can repeat it. Building the infrastructure, I mean, Norwood, we're being a massive plant. It's a $125 million investment in Norwood, you know, 10 miles south of Boston. Uh, it's going to be a gigantic plant. Uh, it's going to be built for the next 20 years. It's super automated. Uh, we use the best technology that's available out there. So those are kind of the big things uh, for the Moderna team for 2018. Well, it's great to speak with you, Stefan. Thanks for being with me today on The Long Run. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences for sponsoring The Long Run. Next on The Long Run, David Schenkine, the CEO of Agios Pharmaceuticals. He says something very few biotech CEOs today dare to say, that he wants to build the next Genentech. Get a much deeper sense of what he means by that in the next episode of The Long Run.